My name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here. Delighted to be with y'all. Would you guys open up your Bibles this morning? We are going to predominantly be, predominantly be in Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, don't feel worried about this. Just please slip up your hands. A couple of our interns will come by and we'll pass out a Bible to you. We want you to be able to follow along for us. Uh, this way you know that whatever's on the screen, we're not making up. It's actually in the Bible and the Word of God. So don't feel weird. Just slip your hand up, get a copy. If you don't own one, you do now. It's our free gift to you. So, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I just want to thank Candace personally, wherever Candace went. Uh, for coming up here and doing that. I've known Candace for a long time now, and that was just that was awesome, Candace, wherever you're at. So please give faithfully to that. I think you'll be in the lobby to answer any questions and talk about one way. So uh, she has a table out there, so go ahead and talk to her as well. If you haven't been with us, we are in week three of a series called Countercultural Convictions. Now, the desire here is not to be countercultural for countercultural sake. It's just acknowledging that the kingdom of God, that what we find in the scriptures, is in and of itself counter to the cultures that we live in. Not just the culture of Flagstaff or the United States of America or of the West, but truly every culture that the kingdom of God has come into contact with, oftentimes. And in many ways, it was at odds with that culture. And so we're exploring seven of those areas where we're seeing that confrontation between the culture of the world and the culture of the kingdom of God. And what does it mean for us to be biblically faithful as the people of God in the midst of that? And so uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the scriptures and what we believe about those. If you have questions about the Bible, thoughts about the Bible, please go back and listen. Uh, Michael Goheen, our seminary professor, uh, was there talking about and I thought it was brilliant. And then last week was truly, it was really more the introduction for the series. It was the lens with which we want us as a church, which we think as corporate and individually, we are to address these issues, and it's through the lens of love, okay? Now, that might sound kind of, right, like we talked about this last week, but kind of that like flagstaff hippie love, like just love each other, that type of idea. Uh, but the biblical vision for love is very robust. It's very beautiful. Uh, and so please just go back and listen to that because that is, again, the lens with which we enter into the conversations that we're going to have over the next four weeks. And so to give you an idea of where we're going, today we're talking about the exclusivity of Jesus, which I don't think is the best name for it, but essentially it's Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the only way towards redemption and restoration and salvation and, and hope and all these things, and we'll delve into that deeper in just a bit. Next week we're going to delve into the waters talking through gender, and then the week after that will be about sexuality, and then we're going to get into uh, more nuances of salvation and election and choice, and then uh, the last week we'll We'll wrap up with talking about the poor and the overlooked and the vulnerable in our society. And so um, we're going to navigate these things again through the lens of what Scripture gives to us. Foundational to this series is Romans 12, verse 2, and so I'll read it for us again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, Right? That we just don't just take in the slow drip of what culture says, but rather we're going to really bathe in, in with intentionality what is the kingdom of God and its culture call its people to. First uh, Corinthians 16, 14 from last week, let all that you do be done in love, right? So not some of the things that you do, but all the things you do. Regardless of who you're doing them to or for, whether it be your spouse, best friend, roommate, co-worker, boss, or enemy... Let everything you do be done in love, okay? 
And so that moves us into this week. Now, um, this idea is not a super popular idea in our culture. We like to kind of think through faith and religion more as a buffet, right? So if you go to, like, the greatest buffet, I think, in the world is at the Wynn, Las Vegas. If you haven't done that, you can go now. Like, just... Just leave church and go and enjoy that buffet. It's just phenomenal. But you just get to pick and choose whatever you want. We treat religion this same way. We say, I'll take a little bit of the Jesus stuff, but I really like some of this Eastern thought, right? Some of this Eastern religion. And I really like me, so I'm really just going to craft some stuff for me too. And then we come up with this religion that is all our own. Okay? And Jesus is going to press up significantly against that. Um, and so Jesus says he is the only way to God. This is not just me coming up with this type of idea. Jesus himself and the scriptures are replete with this. So let's look at some verses. John 14, 6, classic verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12. And there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 10.9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. And then 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Okay, so here's where I want to start us off with. Is there's kind of this idea floating around that like all religions are the same. And here's the thing. Right off the bat, Jesus from his own words and replete through the scriptures is, no, they're not. Okay, so, so we have to at least start off there, that I'm going to tell you everything you hear today, it's not just something someone else says also, that this is really specific, and that Jesus himself said, no, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father, but through me. There's no other avenue, there's no other direction, there's no other, that is the way to the Father. Right? Think of it like this way, like if, if you go out and, and you get someone's number, right? So again, this would be for you singles, right? That's how it, or if you remember, like I, I could probably see that the G's were probably really good at this, right? And so, um, and so Doug, I could see you just be like, hey, Gretchen. So um, you go out and get a number, and Gretchen shares with Doug, hey, my number is, and I don't know if this is there, but 928 three, one, four, six, seven, two, four, but no, it's, uh, and then Doug calls her at nine, two, eight, three, one, four, two, seven, two, six, and he doesn't get her. Does it make any sense for Doug to go to Gretchen and say, hey, you didn't pick up? Like, you, you didn't answer your phone. I tried to call you, and then Gretchen says, well, what number did you go with? And then she tells him again, and then he still tries to dial the same wrong number over and over and over and over again. Okay, it's foolishness. What Jesus is saying is, hey, I've given the world my number. I've given them the way that I am accessed. And it's this. And if you keep trying to batter your head against a different thing, you're never going to get there. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, um, 
when we start talking about this idea of, okay, uh, you know, you'll be saved and restoration, and what, what does it all really look like? I want you to know that there's two dimensions to this. There is this vertical dimension that both um, here and for eternity, here and the hereafter, that God is reconciling, he's fixing that which is broken between humanity and God himself. Right? That we lost relational connection with him in our sin and in the fall way back in Genesis chapter 3 all the way into our own lives when we rebel against him. God is reconciling, he's fixing, he's restoring that broken relationship here on earth and the hereafter after we die for eternity. But he's also restoring a horizontal relationship that is between you and your neighbor, which is also fractured. That the holistic restoration and reconciliation that happens through Jesus is both with God and with one another. And it's absolutely both. And it's what makes the gospel, it's what makes the claims of Christ all the more beautiful and worth following. Now, some more common thoughts of our culture. One, all roads and religions ultimately lead to God. Okay? Like you've often maybe heard this, all little bits and pieces, like it all is kind of trying to paint one part of the picture. What we've kind of done is, you guys remember Build-A-Bear? You guys ever do Build-A-Bear, right? We, we have somewhat of a kind of a Build-A-God, right? So you walk through the store, and you just take bits and pieces, and you build your little God, and then you walk out, and then you cherish that God because it's yours. And then when it ceases to fulfill you, you go and make a different one, Right? You change the clothing, whatever it may be, this illustration's getting silly, but we build our own God. That claim is not possible, it is not in line, it is not coherent with the claims of Jesus. I remember I had a professor in, uh, let's see, it was, in, it was my sophomore year at San Diego State University, religious studies, I can't remember the exact name of the course, but it was this kind of studying different philosophies of world religion, and Dr. Bonnie, and she was brilliant, like I loved her as a professor, but we just disagreed on all sorts of stuff. It was me and my buddy Sean, we were like the two Christian, she called us the Christian brothers, right, in a class of 40, and, uh, and she just, we, we had a good relationship, whatever, but one day she's talking about Taoism, and we're not going to get too much into Taoism today, uh, but if you're familiar with the Tao Te Ching, or if you've read any of that, uh, it is a beautiful text and it's, it's worth reading, and there's, not wis there's wisdom to be taken from it, all that kind of stuff. But I remember saying this one line. She said, the beauty of Taoism is this, that that which is true, that the exact opposite of that thing is equally true. Okay. Now, when she says this, my mind is going like, that's the craziest, stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life, and sorry for saying the S word. But that's what I was thinking other stuff. Like, this is just, that makes zero sense. There's no way anyone's going to buy into that. And I look across the room, and everyone's like, oh, yeah. Like, yes, yes. I mean, that which is true, the exact opposite, it's the, it's the same amount of true. Like, of course. No. <laughs> right? Like, no. Because if, if, even if that statement is true, by that sheer statement, it proves itself untrue. Like, it's just, it's full of fallacy. But it just sounds nice. Right? It, it just sounds like, okay, like I can work with that. Why? Because I, I do want to just coexist well with everyone. 
I don't want to have to get into disagreements, right? Like, I, I don't want to have to know that, okay, well, you, you think this and I think this, and I don't have to tell you that I think differently. Like, it's just easier and, and more peaceable. To, no, of course, like, your thing is just as true as mine. That's impossible, y'all. But, but you hear this just kind of pressed into both verbally and a lot of times it's non-verbally. It's just the drip of our culture. Like, it's all, it's all good, right? And, and then you just run into the claims of Jesus. And, and then you begin to ask the question, well, Jesus didn't say that. And, and, and for most of us in the room, we're going to say, well, we're Christians, which means you are many Christ. You follow what Jesus has said. And so we begin to see the pushback against some of this. Well, let me just kind of build my God in the midst of this. And then the last little layer of this is not just build a God. It's really like build a Jesus. Because now Jesus has taken on different forms in our culture as well. He, he's not the suffering servant, right? He tends to be all these other things. And we don't have time to get into the plethora of ways that we've crafted Christ in our own word and not in his. We've allowed Jesus to become this thing that he never shows himself to be. He never speaks himself to be. And all of Christian tradition would say, no, that's not it. And yet we take these little bits of him because he's just made in our image. And so you get the liturgist Jesus. And if you're not familiar with that podcast, I, I recommend, honestly, you don't listen to it. But they're trying to craft Jesus in ways that are just completely contrary to what he said. You, you get the Mormon Jesus, and this is not a, I'm not trying, if you're here and that's your faith tradition, know that you're loved, but know that we don't believe the same thing. Your, your Jesus is not God, and mine is. It's, it's a massive difference. It's not just a subtle, slight thing. So my hope for us today is this, is not to in any way be judge and jury, right, over other religions or other worldviews. Um, it, it is a desire, though, to hopefully for us craft a vision of the biblical Christ that is so much more magnificent and beautiful that in and of itself it indicts the others, right? That, that because he does what he does and says what he says and we believe it, the indictment falls upon worldviews that are not it. And then we find, we find truth, we find joy, we find everything we're kind of looking for. Um, on the other end of things, and then we'll jump into the text, is Christians, we can often then, from this position of, well, I think we have the right ideology, the right worldview, we can become proud, and we can look towards the others in judgment and in hate and frustration, and then we can devalue their contributions to the world, which is also silly, because they too, made in the image of God, gifted by God to contribute things for the flourishing of this world, even if we disagree with their worldview. And so how do we then, in the midst of that, yes, to actually love and not just coexist, but thrive together in a pluralistic world and society? And hopefully, we'll accomplish all of that in 30 minutes, Okay. <laughs> Luke chapter 15, let's look at one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It might be yours too. It's the parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15, 11, I'll give you a moment to turn there. This is a classic story. If you're not familiar with the Bible a bit, Luke would be in the second half part of your Bible. You'll see Matthew, you'll see Mark, you'll see Luke, you'll see John, and you'll see the book of Acts. So if you hit Acts, you've gone too far. If you hit the, uh, the Gospels, if you see John, you're not far enough. Okay, so Luke chapter 15. Let me start in verse 11. 
And he said, this is Jesus, okay? And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Just real quick pause. This is an absolute scandal for him to try and claim his inheritance before his father's death. He's, he's practically saying, it's better off you're dead. I get mine let me have my stuff, right? And so let's see what the father does. He gives it to him. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called son. your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He takes the inheritance. He goes. He lives a life of licentiousness. He loses everything. He realizes it's better to be just on the property with my dad than to be where I'm at now. Maybe I could go back and he'll hire me as a worker. Like, like just maybe I could go and just and be there and live and he'll pay me and be better than my situation now. Now, the question would be, and if you're already familiar with the story, then you know where this is going. But if, if not, you begin to kind of wrestle with, well, what's the father going to do? Right? And even if we could, as Christians, to slow down and suspend what we know about the text and say, man, like, this is crazy that this son would go, say, Dad, I really wish you were dead. Give me all of my stuff. And he goes and wastes it and then says, well, I'm just going to go back. Like, if you're the dad and all of that, like, sadness that moves to anger and frustration and fear and all of a set of emotion, what would be your response when your son returned home? In verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Okay? The father sees his son who has treated him with hate and disdain and has ruined his life. And he sees him a long way off. And the emotion we see is compassion not fully knowing the story of why the son has returned, but just knowing he's there. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, vertical, and before you, horizontal. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Like what a story. And friends, this is the story of Jesus. Like this is the gospel. It is of a lost creation that 
realizes its depravity, that runs to the Father, and the Father not looking for any type of, well, what should you do to be able to be in my graces again? What should you do? What, should, what test should I put you through that allows you back into the family? No. The Father runs to his Son, embraces him, kisses him, dresses him, puts the ring on his finger to say, you are part of this family, son. That's the gospel. A gospel where it's not about merit. It's not about righteousness. It's not about what you bring back to the farm. But it's about the fact that there's a God that is so loving, compassionate, and gracious that he would run to the one that sought his death. Now, this is in contrast to the rest of the story in verse 25. Now, the father, okay, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, begged him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me the young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older son wasn't too happy with the return of his brother. So he calls his father's compassion out. He calls out his father's move towards mercy, love, and restoration. You see, both sons here are invited inside for the feast. Okay. Both sons are invited in. Son, you've got everything. Like, come in the house. He entreats. He begs the older son, come inside. Feast with us. Be with us. We are a family. But what we see is that the older son is too caught up in his religion. He's too caught up in his righteousness. He's too caught up in his self-belief that he is the worthy one and that he, not his brother, should be inside the house. His religion has destroyed him. And it destroys us. It can destroy us in a couple ways as well. Again, the vertical, we begin to see the father wrongly. We see God wrongly. Notice how the older son talks to his father, right? He says, man, I have served you all. I've never disobeyed your command. Other translations says, I've slaved for you. He sees not his father as dad or as a friend, but rather as a boss. As, a, as kind of this dictatorial commander that says, do this and then you will be in my family. But notice the father's response to his older son when even the older son treats him that way. He says, no, my son, 
And again, you see the wooing of the father that even against the pushback from his son, he says, no, no, you're my son. Like, you are my flesh. Like, you are mine. Come in the house, please. Dine. Feast with us. But the son's religion, the son's self-righteousness, the son's belief that he could earn his way to his father's house and to the feast has blinded him from this invitation. The second part, the horizontal, we begin to look at others wrongly. Notice how the older brother speaks about his younger brother. This son of yours has gone and done this. Right? It's no longer my brother. There's no fleshly union. There's no kinship. There's no love. It's this son of yours. This kid I have nothing to do with. And he begins to say, he went off and wasted everything while I've been here faithful to you. Dad, what are you doing? But notice the father's response to the older son. He calls his little brother, your brother. See, again, the father constantly trying to woo the lost son into an understanding of the restoration that is offered in the house of the father. That when they would feast, there would be reconciliation and restoration, both vertically and horizontally, between God and the brother and between brother and brother. God is doing a restorative, holistic work in this moment, and he invites the son in, but the religion is keeping him out. Josh Butler, pastor at Redemption Tempe, said this about this scene. I love it. He says, inside are the lights and laughter that mark the communion of grace. Outside are the darkness and tears that mark the vanquished self-reliance of sin. Inside is the presence of the Father, and outside is the presence of the self. What's keeping the older brother out is the question. Is it the exclusivity of the father? No. It's the exclusivity of the son. Father, this is the way it's supposed to work. Father, this is the way that it's supposed to be done. I'm not going to come inside unless you begin to look at this son of yours differently. If you begin to see all that I've done for you, if you begin to see all that I've accumulated that gives me the rightful position in the home, not that guy. It's not the exclusivity of the father. It's the exclusivity of the rebellious son that keeps him outside the house and outside the feast. Friends, see, in Christ, and this is what this parable, this story, Jesus is trying to craft for his disciples. He's trying to show them that this entire movement towards I'm going to achieve that I might get God, it does not work. It's not the way that this is built up, but I will tell you this, there is only one religion, one worldview, one faith, one person that claims that type of story in all of the world, and it's the story of Christ. That every religion, every worldview, every ideology are all about how high can you climb up the ladder till you get your desired goal. And in different religions, it's different desired goals. Okay? 
But at the end of the day, it's this, let's just call it God, regardless of what you want to label it. How do you achieve? What must I do? And if I do it, I deserve God. I deserve heaven. I deserve restoration here and hereafter. And Jesus said, no, that, that's, not, that's not the way this works. Let me briefly run through some of these. Jesus and, and, and Buddhism. Now, um, my mother is, was raised Buddhist. She's, she's since become a Christian and given her life and started following Jesus about four years ago in a tear-filled baptism Sunday, which a lot of you were part of, and it was just fascinating, right? But she was raised Buddhist, and so we've, I've been in that, swam those waters with her. We've talked in length about that, studied the religion, all that stuff. But so let me just, and I'm going to go through these somewhat quick. This is not like a, a survey of the world's religions. It's a highlight of Christ in his move towards the act of righteousness upon the cross. And so Buddhism, right, is this idea that the end goal, the God of that is, is let's move towards nirvana. Like let's move towards this complete self-actualization that is a removal from the stresses of the world, right? It's how do I escape these things? The trials, the problems, the stresses of the world. Let us move away that we might ascend to something better, something meta, if you will. Now, this, this pushes up against, obviously, the gospel story in all sorts of significant ways. The ways that I already talked about of this, again, do these things and you'll be able to get to the end goal. You'll be able to achieve, you'll be able to get to the place that you want to be. But let's also just think about this reality that the gospel, that the Bible talks about this beautiful reconciliation of heaven and earth. That the gospel, the Bible talks about the beauty that we are as stewards and as vice regents, as people created in the image of God, we are called to steward the creation, not run from it. We are called to engage with culture, not leave it behind. We are called to shape and form it and fill it that there might be the beauty of Christ in the midst of the stress, in the midst of the creation, not that we might leave it behind. They don't add up. Jesus and Hinduism, this idea, and there's all sorts of things. But again, let's talk about the idea of, of karma, right? That good mostly works itself back to become good again. That's a very brief paraphrase. When we really get down to the nuts and bolts, here's the idea, that if you live a good life here, you will be reincarnated and come back as a better version, right? And, and hear me, in Hinduism... As applied through the culture, that means you will work your way up the social ladder. So we wonder about the caste system that exists in India and other Hindu countries. The idea is this, if you live a good and faithful life, you will work yourself out of lower caste into higher caste. That you will achieve, that you'll be wealthier, that you'll be better off. Do we see how this presses up against the worldview of the scriptures and of the Bible that would say, no man, it's often the weak, the poor, and the downtrodden that are closest to God, not the other way around. It's often the rich and the powerful that are sent home saying, man, no, you will not forsake that for the sake of following me. And so they walk away sad. They're preaching two different gospels. If you live good enough, you'll eventually get to this place and you'll eventually get out of here. Like, and let's even just think about it through the lens of, like, if you're, well, you know what? I'm going to come back to that. <laughs> Jesus in Islam, plenty of differences. But the marked one is what we believe about Christ. 
Jesus in Islam, a great prophet, and hear me, revered in Islam. They do not hate Jesus. They love Jesus. They adore Jesus. But he's not God. He's a prophet. And he's not even the top prophet. He's secondary to Muhammad. Kenneth Craig, who's a renowned, like renowned uh, Islamic apologist, scholar for the faith, and a Muslim himself says this about the difference between the two. While Muhammad enters Mecca successful in victory with sword in hand, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, going willingly to his rejection, suffering and death on the cross. Unlike Muhammad, Jesus makes no triumphal entry into a capitulating Mecca. Muhammad's more effective destiny is further seen as indicating his finality as the seal and the triumph of the prophets. Again, so completely different visions of Christ and how victory is accomplished. In Christ, it's death and sacrifice. In Islam, it is victory and winning. Very different. Again, this is not... Hey, these things are, are be- like, and here's, right, so there is beauty, me, real beauty in those faiths. Like real beauty in the worldview. Real things that the church can listen and learn from. For God has written and put the image of God in every human on this, in this world. We do a lot of um, interfaith work at Redemption. Now, if you're not too familiar with that term, so when you, when you get into interfaith versus like multi-faith, when you get into multi-faith, the idea is, hey, multi-faith means we're all going to get at a table and we somewhat check our convictions at the door, right? It's like, hey, like let's not, let's just kind of come together on the stuff we agree on, leave the other stuff behind. Interfaith is trying to say, no, 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 man, like we're super different. We absolutely believe different stuff. I was at a table last year. There was uh, three or four imams there, three or four rabbis, a handful of evangelical pastors, and we're all singing songs, and we're talking about life, and we're doing all this stuff. And literally to a person, except for the, the, the rabbis had very little interest in this, but the imams and the pastors were like, no, we are actively trying to convert you while we're here. <laughs> and it was just explicit and known. Like, they wanted us to follow Muhammad and Islam, and we wanted them to follow Jesus and Christianity. And it was just out there, and it was known, and we got to talk about real things, whilst also then working for the common good in our world. And there is beauty in those moments. There's peacemaking in those moments that's sorely needed. We don't have time for that. I mean, like, we have time for that. Like, right now, we don't have time to talk about it. You have plenty of time to peacemake. Okay, <laughs> sorry. You're like, pastor said, don't even, you know. You got my southern on right there. Um, one of the kind of misthoughts in the midst of us as you begin talking about world religions is this kind of thought of like, well, yeah, it's easy for you to say that. I mean, you're born in America, right? Like, you, this is Christian nation, you know, that type of idea. Like, it's Christianity everywhere. This is what we do here. If you, if you lived here and that type of thing. One of the things I just, I, I want to just, And again, we don't have time to just explore all this, but just to put this out there, I want you to know, like, the global Christian church is doing just fine. In fact, like, the global Christian church is crushing it. And they're looking to us like, that's terrible, what's going on over there? Like, are there any Christians left? Like, this is the reality of, like, we've talked about this before, they're sending missionaries to us 
Like, we got we to gotta go to Flagstaff. Like, that place is just a mess, right? The global church is exploding. Right now, I don't know if you know this, right, that the conversion rate from people moving from one worldview, one ideology, one religion to Christianity is higher than any other religion, worldview, or ideology in the world. Now, Islam is growing faster than Christianity in the world, but it's primarily through they're having a ton of kids, okay? And that's just the faith just grows through having kids. Now, you look at the faith here in America, more and more we have less kids. Now, you have the Blairs, which are just like, they're just setting our average super high, okay? Um, I don't even know if y'all heard that. Are they all here? There it is. There we go. So there we go. Right? So it's, you know, you got me with my two, and then all of a sudden now our average is five because, right? So it's, but we're having less kids. And so, but I want you to know, like, this is important because this idea of like, ah, this is like an American, no, no, no. The gospel is exploding around the world. Jesus is everywhere. And moving super fast. It's phenomenal. Now, some of us might be thinking, well, I don't follow Buddha, so that's fine. I'm good with Jesus. That's great. Okay. Uh, I don't, I'm not, I don't, Krishna, I haven't read the, the Gita, Bhagavad Gita, right? I haven't read that, so that's not my thing. But I'm telling you, church, friends, me, like we are steeped in all sorts of other religions that mask itself, right, in these great things that the Bible would call idols. That the Bible would say, you know, these are things that you've given your hearts and minds allegiance to and believe that their prophets, their ideologies will be the way to life. They'll be the way to fixing that which is broken. So in the Old Testament, you had mammon and uh, and baal and the asheroth and all these things and, and like we don't have those now they're called sex money and power and they have their own right they have their own prophets that teach us right you have freud power you have nietzsche right you work through all these things like these these philosophers and like okay no i really i buy into what they say about this god that we worship and so we have to address some of those as well because as the great theologian Bob Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody. Okay. The reality is, is that, okay, hear me, <laughs> religious devotion has not gone away in this country and in the West. It's just found a new object of worship. And I think it's some of these things, okay? And there's this quote we've saved, shared here a couple times from David Foster Wallace. Um, an atheist, renowned atheist, okay, apologist for atheism. He says this about these idols. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Dang, is he right. But we buy into these idols, which form religions, which then encapsulate this chase of ours. 
And they're incongruent with the kingdom of God and the claims of Christ. Consumerism is take, take, take. Jesus is give, give, give. Nationalism says, my people are the best in my nation. The kingdom says, all people are the best because I made them. And they're made in the image of God. Tribalism takes it even closer that says, my own little group of people in the midst of wherever I am, we're the best. And all those other people that think differently, act differently, they're worthy of demonization. They're worthy of being called out. They're worthy of no love. Jesus and atheism, there is no God, Jesus. No, I'm God. I'm God. At every level, these worldviews just do not add up to Christ. And then we get to this last one, which is Jesus and self, which says, I am the king of my life, versus Jesus saying, no, I'm the king of your life. That's his claim. That's his desire. It is incongruent with any other worldview. And when we've made ourselves king, we've bought into the religion of self, which I would say is the predominant religion that drives our culture today. It's all about what you can construct for yourself. And when that is offered to you, surely you will deconstruct your faith and build up something that fits you, your personality, your desire, and your belief about the world, not his. But at the end of the day, it's still this rat race of achievement. It's a rat race of let me prove myself to the people around me and to the gods that I serve that I might be liberated, that I might be saved. Jesus, on the other hand, invites us in to something far greater. That wherever religion, every ideology would say God is here, whatever that version of the end goal is, let us work hard to get there. And then you have this glimmering, shining story of God who realized this ladder could never be climbed and so instead came down and moved in the house and lived amongst us and lived the life we could not live, died the death we deserve to die and rose on the third day to give us new life. God came to us because we could not get to him. Maybe you've seen this. Can you put up that, that first cross slide, Lucas? So maybe you've seen this. Uh, this is pretty famous kind of like, you know, uh, illustration that's often used, you know, of like well, you got man on one side and God on the other and it's death in the pit. And so the cross spans the chasm, right? And it's kind of this beautiful idea of like, man, we, so now we, now we can cross, right? Um, will you put up the second one though? So there's an issue with the image, right? Um, still in this image, right, is this vision of what we're going to climb over. We'll cross the chasm. We'll achieve something. The beauty of the gospel is not that God gave us a way that we could go across. It's that through the cross, God made a way for him to come here. Because we could not get there. 
And hear me, it is the only, the only, the only worldview, the only religion, the only ideology that says that. Every single other one says the opposite. Leave here, do better, work harder, achieve more. But the beauty of the gospel is that he knew we couldn't. So instead, he came to us. In the sheer work of Christ, it brings about a conviction upon every other ideology. So I don't know where all of you are at. Like some of you here, and you're Christians, you've been Christians a long time. And there's areas here, Christian, Vince, we need to repent of. Because we have taken Jesus and we've began to, to add some other stuff. And we've created something altogether different than what's offered here. And then I want to say, if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, um, God, you're loved. Like, in ways that are unfathomable. And I want you to know that, like, Freedom is available, and freedom is not found in being able to do whatever you want. It's being found in having someone having done everything you could have. And that's what we have in Jesus. We invite you to see him and to know him, to embrace him, to ask questions about him. One of the massive pieces of this whole thing, when you start getting into what should I believe, is this this... This thing that we've had in the church for a long time that you just can't ask questions, you can't have doubts, you can't, you know, man, like bring those. We want to talk about those. If you're a Christian and you're just wondering, like, I don't know what to still how to navigate some of this, like, talk to someone, right? Like, like come and engage, like, run to, the, run to the church, run to people that can talk to you about the Lord and what the scriptures really point to and about what all of these things are really ultimately at the end of the day trying to say. We'll end with this verse. Um, in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, and it's just one of the most beautiful pictures, I think, of the future that awaits, the hereafter that is promised to those that walked into the feast, that did not stand outside the house in pride and in the religion, but instead saw the exclusivity of Christ as the inclusivity of Christ, the invitation into the, into the home. This is what it will look like for all eternity. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice. And church, we will say this last line together. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all God's people said, let's pray. Jesus, we testify that you are the way. You've claimed to be the way. God, that just by what you've done, what you've said, it is an indictment upon all other ways of thinking. God, thank you that you have done something not just altogether unique, but altogether necessary, God, because we are incapable. Jesus, thank you that you are the only way, the exclusive way, because in that, you're the only one that's truly inclusive. 
because no other option works. That you're truly inclusive. You invite all to come to you and have done what we could not. So Lord, we pray worship in our hearts that we would sing and respond, be a faithful people, repent where we need to. God, I pray that you would call deeply to the hearts of those who, man, they think they, they don't know you or didn't know you when they arrived. That, Lord, you would speak to them and show them your beauty and give their lives to you. They'd follow you. And then they would be part of the mission of the church to bring this inclusive gospel to the world. Christ, we love and we thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen.